Well, we continue on in our sermon series through the book of 1 Samuel. I've entitled my sermon, Why Then Did You Not Obey? Peanuts is a beloved comic strip created by Charles Schultz. It's a comic strip that follows a, the lives of a group of young children, including the iconic characters Charlie Brown and Snoopy. The strip first debuted in 1950, and it was known for its humor and its wit and its insightful commentary on the human condition. The characters in the comic strip navigate the challenges of childhood, of friendship, and of growing up. And many of us remember fondly Snoopy's imaginative adventures, as well as Charlie Brown's eternal optimism. Now, one such strip contains the following. One rainy day, Lucy and Linus were looking out the window. Lucy said, I sure hope it doesn't keep raining until the whole world is flooded. Not to worry, Linus responds with a confident tone. God promised he would never flood the whole world again, and he put the rainbow in the sky to prove it. Thanks, said Lucy with a sigh of relief. That takes a heavy load off my mind. Yes, Linus replies, good theology has a way of doing that. We're going to need some good theology, I think, this morning because our passage today presents us with with four difficult questions, with four problematic ideas that we need to wrestle with. Now, I wouldn't normally preach an Old Testament narrative by just dealing with the issues in the text, but I think these four questions, I think these four problems lead us to the main idea of the passage, and also how we might apply it to our lives. Now, certainly with the first two problems, with the first two difficulties, good theology is going to help us. So let's begin. Let's begin with the first tough question, the first problematic issue, which I'm confident if you listen to the reading, you will already be thinking about. The problem of God's ban. The first tough question pertains to God's command for Saul and Israel regarding the Amalekites. The people of Israel had a history with the Amalekites. Their first encounter with the Amalekites was in the wilderness of Sinai. And you can read about that in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8 through 16. The Israelites had escaped slavery in Egypt had made their way through the Red Sea in an amazing redemption that God worked. And their introduction to the Amalekites was fraught with hostilities, as virtually every other interaction thereafter would be. The Amalekites attacked Israel. But God enabled the Israelites to defeat the Amalekites. And at that time, he declared... I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. In 1 Samuel, God's command is introduced in a very formal way. It's introduced with the formal introduction of God's prophets. And this denotes the seriousness of the situation. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel 
and opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. This call for the destruction of every enemy and all of their possessions is signified by a Hebrew word, haram. And it means to devote to destruction, to destroy utterly and completely, to exterminate. And surely, at least in our day and age, this is a problem that sincere interpreters of the Bible need to understand and be able to defend. The sensibilities of our age require an explanation. At the very least, unbelievers see this as an obstacle to faith, but I know that many believers struggle with it as well. I think we should help ourselves to understand this by looking to God's plan, to God's promises, and to God's character. Many commentators point to God's plan as a way of helping people to understand this particular injunction. God's plan of redemption for the world is God's solution to the catastrophic disobedience of Adam and Eve. It's God's solution to humanity's ensuing fall into sin. And it's God's solution to the corruption that comes with all of that. As we talked about with the children this morning, God promised to save humanity from this tragedy by redeeming us from sin. And the very apex of this plan was to send a savior, a savior who would deliver humanity from the grip of sin. Now this savior would come from God's people. He would come from the tribe of Israel. And God would safeguard his people until the coming of the savior until that Savior accomplished redemption. And any threat to God's people was a threat to God's plan and to God's promises. And God would fulfill his promises. Now God's promises and plans also means that the events of the Old Testament in which Haram was invoked was a unique time in redemptive history. We need to understand this is no longer the means that God uses to deal with his enemies. That is, God no longer uses his people in this way as his proxies by direct command to bring about his judgments using physical force. We no longer work this way. And yet, God did work that way at one time. He had a plan and he had promises. We must also look to God's character in regards to this ban against the Amalekites. We must understand that despite our current sensibilities on moral issues and despite what we may or may not find palatable in moral dilemmas, God is always perfectly and infinitely just. God is always 
perfectly and infinitely just. The Apostle Paul declared this definitively in Romans chapter 9, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Canadian theologian Stephen Wellam, in his systematic theology, explains what it means to say that God is just. He writes, Unlike us, God is just and righteous, and thus he is the standard of justice and righteousness. He is a law unto himself. In all of God's external works, he acts justly and righteously, consistent with his own will and nature. God is the Lord, indeed, the judge of the whole earth, who always does what is right. Now, as we acknowledge that God is just, we also need to take into account the evil of the Amalekites and that God's ban against them was on account of their heinous sin. The Amalekites were some of the most depraved, debauched, degenerate people of the ancient world. Aside from them relentlessly seeking the destruction of Israel, the tribes in the land of Canaan were known for religious activities that included the sacrificing of children. And those things warranted the judgment of God. Now, in an altogether different episode, prior to Israel's conflict with the Amalekites that I alluded to in speaking of the Peanuts comic strip, we know that God who is infinitely just, had destroyed not every Amalekite, but every person on the planet, save Noah and his family through his judgment by the flood. We also know in Scripture that in the future, God, who is infinitely and perfectly just, will bring judgment to this earth through his Son, wherein all those who reject him and his Christ will face the eternal ban of judgment in the lake of fire. And we need to come to terms with this. In these judgments and in the judgment of the Amalekites, God is just. Now I remember when I finally settled this question in my own heart. When I say settled, understand, I do not mean that I exhaustively understood it or that I had pursued all of the nuanced issues to their utter end. When I say I settled it in my heart, I mean the question and the problem no longer burdened me and no longer threatened my faith. I remember I was listening to an episode of Ask Pastor John. These were short interviews with Pastor John Piper in which he would answer a question. And he was dealing with the following question. What made it okay for God to kill women and children in the Old Testament? Now his answer is a hard word. But it's a true word and it's a good word. And I understand that it will be particularly hard for unbelievers to hear this and to understand that. But as we've said, good theology has a way of taking our heavy burdens off of us. And so listen to what John Piper said in response to the question. He said, 
Why was it right for God to slaughter women and children in the Old Testament? How can that ever be right? It's right for God to slaughter women and children anytime he pleases. God gives life and he takes life. Everybody who dies, dies because God wills that they die. God is taking life every day. He will take 50,000 lives today. Life is in God's hand. God decides when your last heartbeat will be and whether it ends through cancer or a bullet wound. God governs. So God is God. He rules and governs everything. And everything he does is just and right and good. God owes us nothing. If I were to drop dead right now or a suicide bomber downstairs were to blow this building up and I were blown into smithereens, God would have done me no wrong. He does no wrong to anybody when he takes their life, whether at two weeks or at age 92. God is not beholden to us at all. He doesn't owe us anything. Now add to that fact that we're all sinners and deserve to die and go to hell yesterday. And the reality that we're even breathing today is sheer common grace from God. Now brothers and sisters, that's a hard word, but it's a true word and it's a good word. And I certainly do not expect that it settles everyone's uneasiness over this ban against the Amalekites or, or it relieves all of your doubts on the issue. But I hope that I have given you some direction in where the answer lies and how I would deal with this type of problem by looking at the plan and the promise and the character of God. If you would like some more direction in studying this issue, feel free to send me an email and I'll suggest some resources to help you on that journey. But let us understand this morning the answer to the first problem, the problem of God's ban against the Amalekites, lies in the character of God. He is just, infinitely and perfectly just. And my prayer is that you will move forward with this problem and work it out with fear and trembling. Let's move on to the next problem. The problem of God's regret. The second problem pertains to God's regret or his lack of regret or both. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. Verse 29, and, the, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. Verse 35, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king in Israel. What do we make of these three statements? Which, on one hand, indicate clearly that God regrets, and on the other hand, indicate clearly that God does not regret. Though there seems to be a contradiction here, we know that God does not contradict himself. And so this must be a contradiction in appearance only. That is, there must be a way in which we can accurately and truthfully say that God regrets, and there must be a way in which we can accurately and truthfully say that God does not regret. So let's take a look at this. Since God is all-knowing, 
He is omniscient. He knows the past, the present, and the future. His regret cannot be associated with a lack of knowledge. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11, declares, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So God's regret doesn't pertain to any lack of knowledge of what is going to come to pass. So in light of his omniscience, what does it mean to say that God regretted making Saul king? How do we deal with this problem? Well, first, I think we need to understand that God is aware of and very much involved in the affairs of humanity. And when things change for humans, God responds in appropriate ways. When Saul continually defies and disobeys God, God responds with regret. This is very similar to the account of the universal flood in Noah's day, which we've alluded to already, where we read, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. That's Genesis 6, 5 through 7. So we need to understand that God responds to what goes on in our world. And secondly, we need to understand that God's foreknowledge of events does not preclude God from experiencing appropriate emotions. Now, we, we must be very careful here because God's emotions are not like our emotions. And this topic gets very deep very quickly. It pertains to the impassibility of God, which I'll, I'll give you a little bit more on that in a moment. But when we read Scripture, it is clear that God does have emotions. But his emotions are of the divine kind, not the human kind. So it is correct to say that God was grieved because of Saul's covenant disloyalty and because of his repetitive disobedience. And in that sense, he did regret making Saul king. Now that being said, there is a sense in which God cannot regret anything. And that's what verse 29 indicates. And this is because of what theologians have called the impassibility of God. The impassibility of God is a complex doctrine, yet there seems to be agreement on the issue when all the terms and words and phrases are agreed upon. The Impassibility of God speaks to his divine nature being unchangeable. Now, for humans, our emotions change us. And yet, for God, his emotions do not change him in any way. 
Malachi 3.6 said, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And in James chapter 1, verse 17, we read, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Pastor and Professor Kevin DeYoung, in talking about the impassibility of God, which makes it, in that sense, impossible for God to regret, writes this, quote, God doesn't get anxious or stressed out or bitter. God is never overcome by emotion in the way that we are. Emotions don't sweep over him involuntarily like they do for us. God cannot be passive in relation to anything or anyone. That is to say, God cannot suffer change with respect to his nature, his will, his knowledge, or his emotions. So in that sense, as being changed by emotional response, we can say accurately and truthfully that God does not regret. The same way we can say God does not lie. His nature does not allow for it. Now listen how DeYoung puts it all together. He says, I can't stress this enough. To be impassable is not to be passionless. To be immutable is not to be motionless. God is always active, always dynamic, always relational. In fact, it is because God is so completely full of action that he cannot change. He is love to the maximum at every moment. He cannot change because he cannot possibly be any more loving or any more just or any more good. God cares for us, but it is not a care that is subject to spasms or fluctuations of intensity. His kindness is not capable of being diminished or augmented. So although God does not undergo changes in his emotional state as humans do, he is nevertheless utterly passionate in his compassion, mercy, joy, and displeasure. We see with this problem that we are again pushed to focus on the character of God. Our first problem helped us clarify that God is infinitely and perfectly just. He is righteous in all his affairs. This second problem has pushed us to acknowledge that God is all-knowing and not surprised by any events, but he also has an unchanging nature. And yet... Even though his nature doesn't change, he still involves himself in the lives of human beings and he still responds in an appropriate way and some of those ways pertain to his divine emotions. And so there is a sense in which God regrets. He regretted making Saul king and yet there is a sense in which God does not regret. He knew it was gonna happen and it did not change him in his nature at all. Now, these two problems are just the first half of the point of this passage. God is righteous, just, and holy. He is all-knowing, and he does not change. He is involved and engaged in our lives, and he grieves when we disobey him. Our final problems, the second half of this passage's main idea, pertain to Saul. 
And my last point, the problems of Saul's partial obedience and partial repentance. The ESV expository commentary says about Saul, instead of true obedience and devotion to God, he pursues a semi-obedience shaped by his personal desires and the expectations of his subjects. God commanded Saul to destroy all of the Amalekites and all of their possessions. And Saul didn't either. His disobedience was willful. What's interesting is Saul was pretty proud of his work. So proud that he made a monument to himself. And yet where Saul saw success, Samuel saw sedition. Now this may be a problem for us because we may look at it to human eyes and say, well, he was partially obedient. That's pretty good. And yet that's not the way God sees things. In fact, Saul incriminates himself with his own words in verses 20 and 21. He starts off by saying, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. Now, what was the word of the Lord to Saul? What was his mission? Kill every Amalekite, kill everything that they own, destroy it. Saul goes on to say, right after he says that he has gone on the mission and obeyed the verse of the Lord, he said, I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. And then he says, the people took to spoil the sheep and the auction. So he wasn't obedient. Saul kept the king of Amalek alive, and he allowed some of the livestock to be kept alive as well. And Samuel challenges him on his unfaithfulness with accusatory questions. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul offers up his excuses, and those excuses elicit the well-known rebuke of Samuel. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Let me make a quick point of application here. Your piety cannot cloak your disobedience from God. You may think and you may even be able to fool the church, but you may think that your regular attendance at church, you may think that your participation in a life group, you may think that your involvement in service in the ministries of the church, you may think that it camouflages your disobedience, but understand that God sees it all. If you are using those good things which you should do as a way to justify or hide your disobedience, stop. Repent of your disobedience and pursue obedience and do those things that God has called you to. Now, as we look at Saul, we understand that he was obedient to a point, but partial obedience is in fact disobedience. And along with Saul's disobedience, we see Saul's failure to repent wholeheartedly. Now Saul admits his guilt. He says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. 
because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And yet this admission of guilt lacks so much of what true repentance looks like. And I think that's why this is a problem. Sometimes we read this story and we say, well, he repented, sort of. But again, partial repentance is no repentance at all. There seems to be very little sorrow for his sin. After this brief admission of guilt to Saul, he immediately tries to engage Saul in political maneuvering on what he can do to maintain his power and look good in front of the people. There's no renouncing of his sin. There's no committing himself to not sin going forward, nor is there a commitment to obey more completely in the future. Saul is a man who fails to obey God and a man who fails to repent when he's been disobedient. So these four problems have really brought us to our main idea for this passage. The problem of God's ban helped us realize that God is infinitely and perfectly just and righteous in all he does and that he judges sin because it is contrary to him. But when he judges, he always does so fairly The problem of God's regret helped us to understand that God's nature is unchangeable. It cannot be altered. It will not mutate. We saw that God's knowledge is complete. He is omniscient. And yet, being an unchangeable and omniscient God, he still engages with human beings. And his nature does not preclude him from experiencing godly emotions. And now the dual problem of Saul's incomplete obedience and incomplete repentance has incurred God's judgment. And this is the tale of the chapter. That God is perfectly just. He is infinitely knowledgeable concerning all things. He is unchanging and yet he engages with humans and responds to them. And this God, our God, should be obeyed. And when he is disobeyed, Our repentance should be wholehearted. Now this call to repentance for disobedience turns our eyes to the cross of Christ where another attribute of God comes to the forefront. That is to say, God is gracious. I think if we all, if we're honest, would confess that we deal in disobedience far more than we like to admit. And when we are obedient, that obedience is often polluted by a partial obedience far too often. Yes, we may keep ourselves from adultery, but we lust after those who are not our spouse. Yes, we keep ourselves from murdering, but our hearts are filled with hatred towards other people. Even our good deeds appear as filthy rags because of the sinful motivations of our heart. And yet, still, the cross calls us to repent and to receive the forgiveness of sin because of the atoning work of Christ and his death and resurrection. Jesus' death upon the cross was for our forgiveness. His blood washes away the sin of our disobedience. We need only to repent 
of our sins and to put our faith in Christ. This is the doing, this is the plan of a gracious God. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, today's passage calls you to repent of your sin, to believe in Jesus and to follow him in obedience. This is how you are saved. Believer, today's passage also calls you to repent of your sin, to put your faith once again in the forgiving work of Jesus and to follow him in obedience. And as we do so, we see that the just, righteous, all-knowing, all-changeable God is also a gracious God because he forgives us through his Son. So with the Spirit's help, let's endeavor to be obedient, to be obedient fully, and let's put our faith in God through Jesus Christ, and when we fail, when we sin, when we're disobedient, let's repent wholeheartedly and see the working of our gracious God. Let's not walk in the way of Saul. Let's pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And even those times when your word may be difficult to understand, may cause us to struggle and wrestle with it, we know that it is a great benefit to us. And we pray that your spirit would help us to understand. Help us to understand your character, that you are always just. You always are good. You always are fair. And help us to see that you are perfectly righteous. Help us to understand that you do not change, that you know everything, and yet you engage with us. You are involved in our lives. And that you feel godly emotions. Help us to understand, as well as we can, that you grieve at our disobedience. But I also pray that by your spirit, you would help us to understand that you are gracious. And you have for us forgiveness in Christ. So give us the strength to repent when we're disobedient. And give us the strength to walk in obedience. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.